Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Sen Institute, and we're excited to have with us today James Chung. James serves as Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. He's also ordained with the Vineyard, and he's written several books, including True Story, A Christianity Worth Believing, and its follow-up, Real Life, A Christianity Worth Living Out. His most recent book was co-authored with Ryan Pfeiffer, and it's entitled Longing for revival from holy discontent to breakthrough faith and james is also one of the featured speakers at amplify outreach conference coming up october 19th and 20th amplify outreach is designed for pastors and christians passionate about entering the real issues of our day to help people discover authentic faith in christ so be sure to learn more about the conference at amplifyoutreach.com but before we go to james let's hear from our host editor-in-chief of outreach magazine and the executive director of the wheaton college billy graham center at stetzer you know i was this many years old when i learned that James was vineyard. So I'm looking to find, you know about my my thing with John Wimber yep, and he yep. prayed for me and all that. And so my phone is named the Wimber phone. My home Wi-Fi network is also named the Wimber Wi-Fi network. So I'm kind of a kind of a vineyard fan and a John Wimber fan. So I didn't know, it was like, I literally just found out that you are a part of our vineyard friends. So, and in the midst, might I add, of a big reorganization that looks good. It looks good, and we're excited. Uh, my, my big hope for the vineyard is it'll actually have, there's two Great Lakes districts, the North Great Lakes District and the South Great Lakes District, and the South Great Lake District, none of the states touch the Great Lakes. So my hope is that in the reorganization, they actually can rename their districts so that they don't <laughs> seem silly. But another story for another day. Good to have, all right, so the, the, you wrote a book and called, mm. this is not your first book, but you've written another book called Longing, for revival. We're going to have you share some from that and, and a talk at our Amplify Outreach Conference. We're very excited for people to come and to be part of that as well, amplifyoutreach.com for more information there. But we need you to tell us more about it. How have you seen God bring revival about in your own ministry? And tell us why you wrote the book related to that. Yeah, actually, uh, we did. So um, this is where Ryan and I met, so my, the co-author of Longing for Revival. And we saw God move in San Diego in our, our ministry. Um, we were at a point where we, as a whole region, so the whole San Diego region, all the campuses that are there, 2001, we saw about six people become followers of Jesus through our ministry throughout that whole year. And that created a holy discontent for us. There was a lot of prayer, agonizing, trying to figure out what do we do next? Um, and Ryan was there. I got there in 2002 uh, and a part of that swing. And then we just uh, sort of rolling the tape forward. God moved in a powerful way. And we were at a point where instead of six, we were at almost at his peak, about 650, 700 people that we knew following Jesus. They were, you know, we knew their names. We knew their stories. They were, they were that many people gave their lives in a given year. So there was a, a sense where you're in a ministry where every week you're hearing about people giving their lives to Jesus. And the ways that that was playing out in word, deed, and power in the ministry was powerful. And I, I think a lot of us who came on staff or were students during that time and then later came on staff, the, the folks there, we always talk about that time. It, it ruined us in a way because we, we saw that, uh, that what God can do it. God can do it. it. It was possible and it ruined us. And so a lot of us are part of that crew again as, as we long for uh, different levels of revival around us. That, uh, that That's how it began. Love that. And I love that your 
thinking in terms of revival, you know, we're doing this big project uh, with the with Biola University. We, the Billy Graham Center, uh, Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Research Institute, we've been doing these, this oral history of the Jesus People Movement. And what you just said is repeated over and over again, uh, related to some vineyard history too, might I add, but repeated over and over again when people say, we've seen revival. Um, and, you know, I, I've sat, sat with leaders who've wept in the midst of their uh, interviews and more. But I think we probably need to define some terms because we think in terms of revival, renewal, reformation, a lot of R's in there. But what is revival? How do you define and describe it? Yeah, and we're working, we wanted to come up with something that would work for the rest of us. What does revival look like for the rest of us? Um, and so in InterVarsity, we had a group called the National Council of Evangelists. And um, we wanted to figure, what would be something that would work for us in InterVarsity as a definition? Because we felt like with InterVarsity, since we're sort of in the middle of things, if it could work for us, it might be able to work for a, a large swath rather than it being on the extremes for folks. So for us, it's it's a season of breakthrough in word, deed, and power that ushers in a new normal of kingdom experience and fruitfulness. And each of those lines are really important to us, but we're trying to define it not just as an event, because there are a lot of folks that use revival as like, this is the revival meeting. You know, we're we're under this revival tent. This is there's ways that we could use it for an event. We wanted to talk about it as a season of breakthrough. We wanted to talk about it in this more fully orbed way of word, deed, and power. We wanted to talk about how it changed the expectations of what's possible so it ushers in a new normal. And it's something that we experience as well as something that we see the fruit of. And th there's reasons why we're holding that together as well. But that's how we're defining it and finding that it's been really helpful for us and our movement and for, for others around that it gives them room to go, oh, yeah, I could do that. I could. I could lean into that and long for that, right? Because revival, that it, it's a tense word for some folks. And we wanted to make it a place where, you know, whether or not you like that word revival, those of us in, in Christian leadership, we long for the marks of revival. We want to see people alive and we want to see this kind of breakthrough happen. Um, we want to see that happen in word, deed, and power. It's just the, the term can be kind of loaded. And so we wanted to create something that'd be revival for the rest of us. You know, James, I mean, uh, longing, I mean, you, you're right. I mean, so many of us long for that, but there comes a temptation with that sometimes where we think uh, revival can come like a formula. If you do X and Y, then you'll have a revival. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you how do you suggest people avoid treating uh, revival and ministry in that particular way? What's a better approach to thinking about revival and maybe contributing towards it? Yeah, that I think that's right. Uh, there's a lot of fear around revival yeah, are we just trying to stir up the emotions, trying to get people excited about something again, right? There's everyone proclaims that a, a revival will happen in our generation. You know, there's there's a lot of ways that it it, it can be that way. Um, but no, it's uh, that's why we talk about longing for revival. We don't manufacture revival. Revival is always a work of God. It is a work of God, and in the same way that we don't know the hour or the day when Jesus is going to return, we. Have to have that kind of humility, though. We don't get to control this. We don't get to manufacture this. This is the work of God. So, if that's the case, though, can we prepare? As, as kind of that might be true of almost anything in the Christian life. It's all God doing it. But can the people of God prepare, be open, participate, let God lead, but us follow into uh, and be empowered by? Um, there are ways that we can long for. We can lift. We can't create the wind to push the boat. But if the wind were to come, we can at least have the sail up to catch as much of the wind as possible. 
Yeah, that's like Rick Warren, 1986. So I'm a little bit traumatized that you've basically made a Rick Warren quote about <laughs> catching the sale. That's okay, but I, I think it's I think it is important. So all right, so I'm we're yeah. downstairs at the Billy Graham Hall. Right upstairs is the Billy Graham Center Museum. You've been through it with us. Mm-hmm. I actually come to the place where the first Great Awakening is, mm-hmm. and I got to explain the first Great Awakening, and then I go on the other side to the second Great Awakening, and mm-hmm. I explain that big difference between the two is that Finney who's got a whole set of theological issues, but Finney thought that new measures could produce a revival or an awakening. Uh, Whereas if you went back to the first great awakening, they would say it was a sovereign move of God. Either way, I want to, I want to be a part of it. I want to hoist the sails, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to use that reference. Um, So what's the difference between Finney's new measures? Let's pray a revival in, which is, which is not an uncommon way that people think today. Um, but you seem to be saying, no, it's more we need to prepare and then see how God chooses to pour out. But maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. So help me understand the difference between where we can bring in a revival, we can usher in a revival, or we prepare mm-hmm. for a revival. Nuance that for us. Yeah, sure. And yeah, we're not trying to create the anxious seats. <laughs> and, right. um, you know, he was deliberate. Nice historic There's, reference, might I add. Yeah. yeah there, there are ways that that could be deliberate and you could play on the emotions and you can sort of justify that saying that that's, well, we're doing this for good ends. A lot of, a lot of messed up stuff is done in the name of good. Right. So that's, um, no, no. But as long as we locate where that revival begins, actually, so out of Psalm 85, I'm trying to locate revival in this longer arc of redempted history. Like, where are we going? Aren't we going to, in some sense, one long unending revival? At some point, when all of history is written and done, we're heading to one unending revival, where our hearts and all the marks of that is playing itself out in full. And if that's the case, then as we long for revival now, we're actually sort of in this line of a long history, and we're responding to what God is doing in it. And, and so if he desires to do these these seasons of breakthrough in the meantime, we can respond to that. But because we are all heading that direction, then longing for revival is just basically being in the will of God and where he's going to take everything one day. So it's with that, the, putting the location of who's actually doing the revival is, is pretty crucial. Um, we have a chapter in our book that's, that's on character and humility. We just felt like we had to add something there because a lot of revival leaders can get kind of strident. You know, some, because of the fruit of their ministries, can sometimes be abusive. Yeah. Um, we, we really need, and in history, it shows us a lot of revival leaders, those who got abusive or paranoid or something else sort of took them out and stalled the revival in some ways. Some of it went around them, some of it, but it wasn't fully what it could have been. And so, no, we, we don't want to put the locus on us or even in the skills or the tools. And maybe that's the separation. We're not trying to teach skills or tools. We're trying to have the people of God prepare and be ready. And the preparation being praying and listening and being in a place where we can respond to God. Because it's, it's, a, it's a myth to think that just because we heard from God, that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be able to follow through with it without his grace right. and his help. So um, just putting it there. We're not locating it on the skills or the tools necessarily. Um, and definitely not as a first place, but wanting to respond to God's initiative. I like it. Okay, so you mentioned some of the toxic realities, and and yeah. um, you know I've been around long enough. You've been around long enough. We both got some gray hair now. Um, <laughs> that was a discussion before we started recording. But yeah. um, let me, part of the challenges is that it seems that sometimes in these great explosions, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There's unhealthy, toxic people, explosions of growth, you know, that that people at the time think this is amazing. And then we sort of peel back the curtain and it's not so amazing. There's toxicity and more. So how do you, you know, how do we think about that? How should we understand what happened in those cases? I mean, again, this is a whole chapter uh, in the book. And again, we want to encourage people to pick up the book as well. Uh, again, we're talking about longing for revival. Um, but how do you explain the character relationship? Because I will tell you, most books on revival don't have a section on character, but it seems we sure do need that in 2021. Why is it oh. important? And tell us a little bit what you said. We, we definitely, it, it's absolutely important. I mean, you see it in in history. We, we, you definitely have to have that. Um, maybe to say the work of the Lord is never neat and tidy. <laughs> I, I rarely find like God puts it in a perfect box and hands it to us and say, look, look, I designed this thing. It's perfect as it is. Just don't mess it up. It's going to run perfectly. You know, that's uh, anyone who's been in Christian ministry to any amount of degree, right? The conflicts we were working with imperfect folks. It, there, there's a way that just because there's a strong move of God, you can almost expect that there will also be a strong work of the enemy against it. And that you can expect it to be messy. You can expect it to be, have things that are not controllable. There are going to be places where it will go off the rails for a bit. Um, that's all a part of these moves of God. I, it's, it's hard to think of one that didn't have something that was there. We should call it out as, lead, as Christian leaders. If we can correct and call out and help it and shepherd it and do it in the character and the fruit of of, of the spirit, that all of that is right and good. And we have to do that. But to say that when revivals come, they're perfect and there's never issues, you know, like Robert Evans in the, in the Welsh revival, right? He had some character issues kind of near the end of what ha- was happening with him. There, there's just, you can't, it's not going to be perfect. There's going to, people who lead them aren't going to be perfect. And so I think it's a delicate balance. I'm just trying to push it. There are the, on the one side where you don't want to excuse the abuses and so um, you have to be careful of those things. But on the other side, I think there's a side that wants it to be perfect. And I just don't think that that's how that works. Um, if it were, then we wouldn't have to depend on his spirit to help us through it. So I, I think we just, we need to let that expectation die. It's not going to be perfect. It isn't like 5% year over year growth in this perfectly um, kind of healthy ways. It comes in fits and spurts and starts and, um, I think once we know that that's going to happen, then if we can respond as faithfully as we can in the, in the process, I think that's helpful. Hmm. You know, James, I'm interested in, in hearing from you, like which revival has impacted you the most, but I want to come back to a point that you made earlier that often, uh, you know, uh, we think emotionalism is, you know, uh, a big, uh, a big sign and a marker of revivalism or re- revivals. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the, the youth high, right? When you go to a spiritual retreat, sure. And uh, you get that spiritual high. Um, and, and we don't want to deny emotions, right? But um, that's not like the end all of what a revival is about. So uh, you, you gave us some markers around what's a true revival. But can you talk about how that's different and differentiate that between just like that, just that spiritual high that sometimes people are seeking? Because that often might could lead to some of the toxic issues that we've talked about because they're chasing that. So can you talk about that? And then, you know, second question is I'm, we're just interested in what revival has impacted you. That's good. Oh, great. Yeah. That's, that's a lot there. And uh, maybe even just following up on the last question, like we look at the new Testament, which is this big revival, you know, it's full of these ups and downs and dissensions and problems and character issues, right? That's a part of how that this stuff works. Um, Yeah. There's, there's a place where, um, emotionalism can kick in. This is why I was actually 
I, I actually did not like the word revival. I grew up in a church where revival was talked about all the time, right? Like anything that wasn't on Sunday was a revival meeting. Any retreat went to, it was a, a revival. Um, so I, I, I grew up against it because I felt like it was trying to stir some things up for me. Um, my first ever sermon, the first ever talk that I gave outside of my ministry context, an external one, was trying to dress down revival and telling people like, don't wow. seek revival, just be faithful, right? The king of the kingdom is already here. Uh, so that's actually my background. Um, so I, I really push against it. I'm hoping then as we move forward that it isn't just about how I'm feeling, or, but we also didn't want to take that away. That's why we're talking about kingdom experience and fruitfulness. So there's the, in revival, in our definition, there's got to be some fruitfulness and done in some fully proclaimed, fully orbed way. We're dean and power. And we're pulling that out of Romans 15, what Paul talks about, a fully proclaimed gospel, both about geography, but I think also uh, about the quality of that. It's done in word, deed, and power. And I think holding those things together of sort of true the scripture, um, compassion and justice and deeds, intimacy with God and being open to what God is doing, all of that put together, word, deed, and power. Um, that's how we keep revival, quote unquote, on the rails. Um, and try to to seek God to do that. But the experience part is important, though. I, I don't want to downplay that either. Um, this is going to like sound super obvious, but it was one of those insights that hit us as we were kind of researching and writing, is that no revival happened without revived people. Right? And that's that sounds like almost like idiotically obvious, right? That no revival happens without revived people. So in some sense, there has to be a personal revival. There has to be something that happens in us because when you just kind of go through histories of revival, it doesn't, I'm not saying it starts with one person, but God tends to just light up people and they connect with each other. And then some leaders come out of that, but revival spread from people. Revivals tend to always start small and they tend to always be with people who are already been to it. And then it sort of blows up and uh, revival happens with revived people. So there's an experiential part that is important on the inside, that what we call it personal revival, but then that has ways of spreading if the revival, revival continues to grow to community, to region, to country, to world, if it gets to that level. So we, um, you talked about messy, um, yeah. but we're also not toxic. We recognize that there are places that need to be addressed. We're not equating messy with toxic. Right. Um, right. But I think about the vineyard, you know, the vineyard's mm -hmm. uh, spiritual birthday is Mother's Day, 1980. Lonnie Frisbee shows up. You can see the video online. There's a whole messy story there. There's a whole messy story there. Uh, or if you look at the Calvary Chapel, which also Lonnie Frisbee was there at the beginning, still part of the messy story. But as we're talking to these people who are telling us about these communes and some of them become authoritarian and there there is mm -hmm. toxicity and, and yet there's some things are just, I mean, beautiful stories of what Calvary Chapel you know, and Vineyard started out of a Calvary Chapel. So there's there's beautiful stories and messy stories and toxic stories yes. all sort of mixed together. What's an example of, or maybe even your own journey, where there was some mess, but God worked, you dealt with some of the, or they dealt with some of the issues that were there. I mean, can you give us some examples, either personally or historically, where they walked through some of those challenges? Oh, that's a great one. Or even in the New Testament, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, you know what, uh, and this will tie into what Daniel asked me before, like what revival was has yeah. been the most impactful for me. And um, for me, it's the Korean revivals. Um, I'm a fifth generation descendant, spiritual descendant of the Korean revivals. But I didn't know that until we started writing this book. My hmm. dad had no idea of the story. 
And um, but I assume because we're Protestant Christians from Korea that you know almost everybody has some connection to Pyongyang to, to the revivals that happened at Pyongyang, the Korean revivals of 1907. And so I, I asked Dad, I asked my dad, you know, when did so how are we connected to the to the Korean revivals? And he goes, We're not. And I go, What? Go back and learn, you know. So I actually it's this funny conversation I have with my with my dad. And said, "Can you go back and ask your family? Because <laughs> uh, he's been in the states for decades." So he does, and he finds this story that I don't have time to tell here. But it's basically um, my great great grandmother is a shaman of the village, and from the Pyong- a missionary sent from the Pyongyang revivals meets her, helps her meet Jesus. She becomes a Christian, oh, plants gosh. the first church in this village, fifty miles north, fifty miles north of Pyongyang. Um, and then it's the church that my uh, my great grandfather was an elder. My grandparents met in that church. My father was baptized in that church, right? Like it's it has this huge impact on on me and on us. A lot of Korean spirituality is revival spirituality, right? The idea of small group, praying in one voice, uh, those kinds of things, uh, praying every single day in the mornings, right? That happened. That started there, and has spread for us. Um, there was as an incident that happened, and getting this is getting to Ed's question in 1907, where um, there was some serious tension that was happening among the leadership, um, the Korean nationals and the the Western missionaries at the time. There was a, a a major tension. I believe it was William Blair who who got the attention of it, and he wrote the book the the Korean Pentecost. It's a fantastic read. Um, there's a there's a part there where it, it's getting tough, and I I don't know if I call it. I don't know if it's quite a toxic, it's definitely messy. And there's a lot of infighting that's happening. And what sort of breaks it up? The first meeting actually was kind of dead. They didn't sense God moving very strongly at, at first president Pyongyang. I think it's first president Pyongyang. Then, and so they prayed and there was like, something's blocking, something's happening here. So they prayed through that. And I believe it was the second or third night when a Korean national, um, just, and this never happens in Korean culture, right? Like a Korean national just fell on his knees on a stage and asked for forgiveness from the Western missionary. I believe it was William Blair and just asked for forgiveness because he had held all this hatred in his heart and didn't trust him and wanted to confess that. Now for a Korean leader to do that, especially at the turn of the century, you know, that's unheard of. That's super shameful, but he confessed it and it was received in forgiveness. And that actually broke out then this huge night of confession which was the beginning, really, of God moving in the, in, these, in this revival there, um, and that set off this movement that's really spread uh, throughout the Korean Peninsula. Um, it it was neat the way to see that they were bringing it to the table, and that was sort of individual messiness, uh, not quite toxicity yet, but there was places where there there were some things that were happening there, and they worked through it, and it became actually the reason, the spark plug. For the Holy Spirit to move, and then they they kept going right. They they were asking. Uh, it was a time when the Japanese oppression was growing. They won't fully. They didn't fully occupy, uh, like officially do that until about I think 1915 is when that happened. So there's still at like less than a decade left before that actually happened. But the oppression of the Japanese was strong already at that time. So there was a call to systemic forgiveness of oppressor, but also there were some parts where there would be calls to nonviolent resistance. And the church was often seen as resistant. The way my father would talk about that time was to be like anti-communist at the time, or sorry, this is later with the communist depression. Um, and to be Christian were sort of synonymous in that space. 
And without trying to get into all the politics of that means here, because of the ways that this had social implications, the gospel had some implications for them, and that's how they would respond. Um, So uh, the Korean uh, renewal revival, sort of that that area, there was places where they had to work through some stuff. And they did it in very countercultural ways, but it was a way that the spirit was unleashed. Yeah, well, it's an incredible example because, I mean, if you think about it, uh, Pyongyang was North Korea. Now, I mean, that spread down to the South Korea. And, you know, there's probably, it's arguably, you can argue that what's happening in North Korea is almost done or dead. But what's what's been persisting in South Korea in terms of missionaries and sending and all that, I mean, revival doesn't just stay in one place, right? It goes from region to region and and it persists in different ways. And it makes me think about, you know, our, our, our audience is pastors and ministry leaders, James, and um, mm-hmm. just think about what's our cultural climate that we're in right now. And as a student of revival and as an evangelist, like what, do you, what are you seeing in our time right now culturally that, that, you know, in, encourages you, that should inspire our listeners to think about partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit in, in this time? Yeah, there's, there's glimmers of hope in, in pretty dark places. Uh, I, I think, and this is just me speaking, not, not on any level of authority here, but if I'm thinking about two unique contributions that American Christians can bring to the culture, I think one is obviously the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's not taught anywhere else. That's something we can lean into. But the second, and this, I don't know how this will connect. I, I think we can bring reconciliation Reconciliation is a key part of our theology and who we are. Um, we've been reconciled back to God. That reconciles us with each other. But we're in a culture where reconciliation is a dirty word on everybody's. Right? Reconciliation moves too slow. It moves at the speed of majority culture. Or, um, you know, in the academy, for sure, it's, it's justice. It's tolerance. It's, um, but it's not reconciliation which I'm defining as reconciliation equaling justice plus forgiveness, that both of those are in play. So, you know, these communities where you're seeing people like in a time where we're tribing up and where there's the enemy out there and we're constantly putting ourselves as different than the other, that you're seeing communities of faith where it's not in the news, but they're, they're still forgiving each other. They're still addressing some of the things that their people might've done to other folks. They're still, places where we're learning how to reconcile with each other and to live as one community. And you hear all the crazy stories, but then you hear like, you know, on campus or different ways that our students are reaching out across culture or across uh, different kinds of socioeconomic barriers or other kinds of things and finding places where we can be together. Yeah, you know, I, I just think that the hope, there's some real hope needed in our culture and if we as a Christian church could re-embrace like leading fully, right? Like there are churches who do it, but just sort of all together, the leadership of the Holy Spirit and being open to whatever the Spirit wants to do and a real desire to not make enemies, right? To love our enemies, to figure out how to do this together, to seek justice and forgiveness, not just one or the other. Um, it just makes me like, I think you see glimmers of it on a micro scale be great to keep seeing what that could look like. Does that give us the practice so that that can spread out and, 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 and be a place where we can be good witnesses, like sort of back to what uh, we're talking about, right? Like our being together, John 17 is a big part of how people see us and the witness of whether Jesus came from God and um, wanting to recapture that. Yeah. The, um, 
I love, I love the book. Full book is uh, the full title is "Looking Longing for Revival from Holy Discontent to Breakthrough Faith." Uh, James Chung and Rob, uh, Ryan Pfeiffer, um, and. I love the theme. I love the the content, and I love that you're going to be sharing some of this at the Amplify Outreach Conference. Uh, I think, as of right now, my opening talk at the Amplify Outreach Conference will be focused on the cultural moment and how the moment we're in does not pause mm-hmm. the mission we're on. And I'm mm-hmm. going to point back to 1968, which will be part of some of your spiritual heritage through the vineyard. I'm going to point back to 1968 was a year of great tumult and turbulence. There was assassinations, you know, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. That year, there was riots, um, you know, Chicago, uh, there was a police riot, there were riots uh, following civil rights protests, uh, there were civil rights protests that people had to take a take a stand and a view on, there were Vietnam War protests, and what a lot of people forget, there was a global pandemic that year, mm. um, that depending on who's doing the counting, millions of people died. And I think we're living in the cultural convulsion of 2020 and 2021, looks a lot like 1968. And it was in 1968 when that guy named Lonnie Frisbee hooked up with that guy named Chuck Smith. And most people see as a marker beginning of the Jesus People movement where, depending on who counts, 20 to 30 million people are impacted by that movement, including the vineyard, which births out Mm -hmm. of that. And it precedes Mother's Day 1980. That's the spiritual birthday. So for me, I'm actually excited that you have written a book together with Ryan on revival. You're going to talk about it. Because I'm, I you know, I know I'm a perpetual optimist. I've read the end of the book, Jesus Wins, so I'm always ready for that win to be evident. <laughs> but I just think we may be at that that providential turning point when we could see that that outpouring. So I guess my question for you is: Give us kind of a preview of what we're going to hear a little bit around this issue of the opportunity and our obedience towards preparing for what could be a revival, a harvest uh, that men and women coming to faith in Christ. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, it's that moment, the cultural moment. That's great that you're making the parallel of the 68. It, and it, it's this, the time is ripe. It, it is funny. It um, We're at the place where we're at the reckoning, right? Everything that we've tried, whether on, on the left or the right, everything that we've done sort of is, is crumbling. And even the stuff that we thought were successes, even in Christian ministry, you know, we have podcasts and other things out there sort of exposing the things that are happening. I think we're getting to the point where we're, we are desperate. We, we know we can't get ourselves out of this, right? What, what a great time then to say, okay, we're going to admit the truth of the thing that's always been true. We can't do this on our own. It has to be God doing it. And how do we come back to it? So I'm hoping to talk to make a case why longing and revival makes sense. And especially for those who might be, um, the word was either overused or for some reason they have a negative connotation to say like, actually, uh, I was in that same place. But there is good reason to long. There is good reason to be open to it. And and to pray into that, and how do we then respond? So that's the kind of stuff I'll be talking about at Amplify. Mm. That's really good, uh, James. And I, I want to again uh, give the title of your book with uh, Ryan Pfeiffer: "Longing for Revival from Holy Discontent to Breakthrough Faith." Uh, James, if some uh, some of our listeners wanted to learn more about you and your ministry, where, where can they find you? Uh, JamesChong.net would be a great place to start. Great. Hey, thanks for joining us. And hey, we've been talking with James Chung, Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at InVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. 
Thanks again for listening to the Setzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews like this one with James, as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com. And don't forget to check out Amplify Outreach Conference at amplifyoutreach.com. If you found our conversation helpful today, uh, we'd love for you to take a few moments and leave us a review on iTunes. This will help other ministry leaders find us uh, and benefit from our content. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app available for both Apple and Android. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.